So really, really special podcast this week. Uh, a good friend of mine and somebody I'm proud to call a good friend. Somebody I really love, man. Uh, Kirstie Ennis. You know, uh, she's the Pat Tillman Award winner. She's an athlete. She's um, she's an inspirational story. Somebody who empowers women and girls everywhere. Um, she's an above-the-knee amputee. She's the first above-the-knee amputee to summit Kilimanjaro and she's a Marine and you know she's definitely a Marine when you meet her she's a badass but she also has a really great soft heart and um, you know anybody she meets uh, she would definitely tell you that and uh, I got a chance to climb that mountain with her she's she's done a lot uh, for charity she's a philanthropist uh, kind of a renaissance woman and uh, you know again Pat Tillman award winner met you know, talked to her in LA before she got the award. So, um, you know, it's interviews a little dated, but uh, she was awesome. And uh, obviously overcame a lot of, a lot of um, struggles and uh, tough times after she lost her leg. But I, I don't think there's anybody better to tell her story um, and, and to turn that tragedy into triumph than Kirstie Ennis. Enjoy the interview. She's the best. Kirstie Ennis, one of my favorites and somebody I actually know very well. I've spent a lot of time on the side of a mountain with you. Yeah. And uh, we summited Killy together. And most importantly, I think um, an icon uh, to a lot of young women out there and um, somebody who served our country and uh, the winner of the Pat Tillman Award this year at the ESPYs. So we're celebrating early in the morning. There's lipstick <laughs> on my cup of vanilla vodka here. Uh, not my choice. Uh, how are you, Kirsty? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's just an honor to be out here in LA for the ESPYs and yeah, it's been a wild ride since the last time we climbed together. Yeah. Uh, been busy. You've added some things to your resume. Just a few. You're here for the Pat Tillman Award. Um, everybody knows who Pat Tillman is, but what made him different? What made him deserving of recognition decades later and, and beyond? Well, uh, for me as an athlete and then also as a service person, I, I know what it takes to be a part of a team like that and to be able to sacrifice for the greater good of what you guys are going through, you know, whether it's on the field or off the field, you know, as a family. It takes a lot, you know, you have to have a lot of heart to be a part of a team like that in the ways that he was. But for him to take off the jersey and then go forth and join the military, and not just join the military to, you know, do your typical nine to five sitting behind a desk job, but he was going to the front lines and, and wholeheartedly um, and obviously willing to lay his life down for the man or woman that stood to his left or right. Um, and he did, he paid the ultimate sacrifice. To me, that that's just somebody that we should all want to emulate. You know, I think all too often in our day and age, we get wrapped up of sitting behind a screen or going through the motions of our day to day, but for somebody to truly want to get up every day and make a difference in the world, do something for the greater good. Um, I mean, I just think Pat Tillman embodies that. Um, and he's somebody that, he's a household name that people idolize him. You know, he is a true American hero on and off the field and um, on the battlefield. This is Coach Dave McGinnis. I've been asked by a, a, a very good friend of mine and another player I respect a lot, Chris Long, to talk a little bit about uh, Pat Tillman. 
I was fortunate enough in my career to not only be a defensive coordinator and, or, and a head coach during Pat Tillman's career. I was involved in drafting Pat Tillman, and I was very much involved in his football playing career. I coached the National Football League for 31 years. That entails thousands of players. There is no football player that has had more impact on my life as a human being than Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman embodied as a player exactly what you would want. He was fearless, he was loyal, he was honest, and he was always there. You always knew that when he stepped across the line for you as a coach, you would get everything that he had. An extremely brilliant, brilliant human being. He was a true Renaissance man. But Pat Tillman also embodied the, the traits of honesty, integrity, and dignity in every aspect of his life. You know, those three words sometimes are just words on a page, but Pat Tillman lived those words. I cannot tell you the many uh, conversations that I've had with Pat Tillman as to where we would not talk about football, but we would talk about life and things that were very, very important. And I saw that in Pat Tillman when 9-11 happened. And, and, and being involved with him and then being the one person that he came to when he made a decision to, to leave a very lucrative National Football League career on the table when, when he and Marie had just gotten married to go serve his country because he felt a real sense of duty in doing that and sitting down with him and, and listening to him tell me his reasons and, and tell me what he was going to do and then being able to talk to him and, and just to, to feel the genuineness. I mean, you don't come across human beings in your life that are like Pat Tillman. As I said, I've been involved with thousands and thousands of National Football League players. They're all very impressive, but none have ever had the impression on my life, and I think I can say this too, have never had the impression on the lives of so many people in America as Pat Tillman. I think with Pat, what's cool is that he just took action, right? And that doesn't mean that everybody has to like take action and go join the military, but like do something to back your convictions, you know? And uh, we aren't a society where people take action, it feels like anymore. We, we talk a lot, uh, but we don't back it up. I don't have the balls to go join the military, but uh, Pat, Pat did and he gave his career for that. And I think that can, can Pat's legacy affect not just military men and women or football players, but just regular people as well? No, I think, I think history and what he's done, I, it should impact everyone. If you see a problem, do something about it. Right. If you see something wrong, say something. Yeah. Um, like I think for whatever reason, um, especially the younger generations, I think maybe we're getting a little bit better about it, but instead of having a backbone, like everybody wants to complain about something, but no one's actually putting one foot in front of the other and doing something about it. Right. And I think we all need that, that mm. inspiration in our lives, whether it's something as minor as making a change in your day-to-day -day or you know, the bigger picture, finding something that you believe in and standing up for it. Because it, it could be easy to, to look at Pat and be like, well, he's just, he's better than me. He's, you know, a regular guy like me or somebody at home, whether it's an NFL player or somebody watching on TV and be like, how do I apply that to my life? But, but it's all relative, the, the actions you take, like the, the little things you do, like it could be one act of kindness or one community engagement. I mean, like, you know, your service to the country has just been part of who you are, you know, like you've done so much else. Uh, uh, among your, your long list of amazing accomplishments is singing the national anthem <laughs> in, in front of a whole bunch of fucking people. 
What's scarier, the speech you got to give tonight or singing the national anthem in front of a bunch of people? Singing the national anthem in front of a bunch of people. Yeah. Man, I was not, I wasn't even worried about how I sounded. I was yeah. more worried about like screwing up that one word. <laughs> like, yeah. Skipping a word or something like that. But you even, skip a word, they're not giving you any fucking slack because you're supposed to know yeah. all of that. I mean, yeah, if I sounded like crap, so be it. Like, yeah. all right, fine. But yeah, I, uh, I was so terrified of just forgetting a word. You didn't want to Fergie it. No, no, I didn't. You didn't want to take your artistic liberties. It's not something you take too. Where's the line on artistic liberties? I want to ask you as somebody who's sung the national anthem and served our country, what's the line on the artistic liberties? Well, it really is the hardest song on the planet to sing. Like just how much your voice has to, how, how far your pitches have to vary basically. But no, you sing that song, like just like Francis Scott Key wrote it, like yeah. That's it, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I went online and I watched everybody from Carrie Underwood to Reba. To, oh, so you studied the tape? Oh, I like watched all of them. Like, okay, I didn't like what you did there. I did like what you did there. Um, so who, who who sung it best? I think Reba. Reba <laughs> and Whitney Houston, but I am not a Whitney Houston. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> it's kind of like in football when they tell you to like go study. Like, you know, I've used this a bunch, but like Julius Peppers. I'm like, well, that's great. It's fun to look at, but like, what can I take from that? That guy's just totally different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with some training, maybe you can become Whitney Houston. Yeah, a lot of training. Uh, the speech tonight. How long does it have to be? What are you worried about? Oh man, uh, the speech tonight. I wasn't too stressed about it. Like I actually really enjoy public speaking. Yeah. Um, and again, the same thing. I went online and I watched everybody from you know the Jimmy V Award, the Pat Tillman Award, all sorts of recipients. And you know, I I wanted to leave an impact. Um, one of my biggest concerns um, was like looking around an audience and people not being moved. Like I want to say something that's impactful. And tomorrow morning, people wake up and say, Hey, you know, I, I listened to Kirsty and I want to you know follow through with what she said. First off, you you joined the military at 17 which to me to have the wherewithal to make that decision at 17 is you're either more mature or more convicted than somebody else or or you just want out of your fucking house. <laughs> uh, which one was it? Was it a combination uh, and what drove that? Uh, it was a combination for sure. So I, um, <laughs> I will be like transparent on all of this. I was a terrible child, just mischievous, like total asshole to my parents. But, um, you know, I was raised by two Marines. You know, mm-hmm. my mom, dad got married at 18. Dad joined the Marine Corps right off the bat. You know, I came along a few years down the road. And actually at 27 years old, uh, my mom came home and told my dad, you know, I think these female Marines are pretty badass. And dad looked to my mom and said, I will never be married to a female Marine. So my mom said, watch this, turned around, left, got an age waiver and joined the Marine Corps. (laughs) Your family is the ultimate one-up family. (laughs) Like, it's just like, oh, I can't do that? Fuck you, I'm gonna do it. That's insane. Pretty much. And so like, like, my earliest memory is watching my mom graduate boot camp. Yeah. Um, And I just idolized him for it. I thought it was just the coolest thing that, you know, my parents were the superheroes that got up at four o'clock in the morning to go essentially protect people that couldn't protect themselves. and so I knew early on that I wanted to, you know, to follow in their footsteps, so to speak. And um, I just joined a lot sooner than I was anticipating. Mm-hmm. Um, I was done with high school by 15, did two years of college. And four months after my 17th birthday, I just kept getting into trouble. Yeah. Um, and so at the time, I just like, put the pieces together. I was like, you want to you join the Marines? So 
Time to go now. What's getting grounded like in your house with two, <laughs> like, you know, because most people have to deal with one Marine parent or, you know, or somebody with a military background. That's bad enough. My dad played 13 years in the NFL, big imposing guy. He's got a flat top. He looks like <laughs> he could be in the military. Um, and it sucks. Like, what was getting disciplined in your house like? So, I mean, don't get me wrong, I did get grounded, like the typical, oh, you're gonna get your phone or your TV or whatever taken away, but my mom was good. Like, if I, if I snuck out um, and came home and she could tell I was hang- hungover, she just wouldn't let me sleep. And she'd right. make me do the, like, the worst things, like, which is good for your hangover. Uh, absolutely. So it's kind of, it's kind of backwards because by noon you feel better. I'm like, Thanks, I've been raking leaves. <laughs> yeah. I sweated. Yeah. No, she just like, she put me through hell, like every little thing. Um, and it was just always like obscure, obscure things where like if she knew I was drunk when I came home, she'd make me drink more. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. the last thing I want to do. Yeah. That's rude. Let's take the carton of cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're going to smoke this whole carton. Yeah. I didn't get caught a lot. <laughs> I, when I did, I, I, I got I, I was once grounded for six months. Yeah. But I got out on parole. It's tough when 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 you got when you got hard ass parents, yeah. and I, I feel like it makes you better. Like one day when you have kids, like are you gonna be the hard ass parent? Or are you gonna be like the chill parent? Because you seem pretty chill, but you have that background where you could be a badass. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, I go yeah zero to hundred real quick. Yeah. <laughs> so I like to think if I ever had kids, I'm definitely gonna be hard on them. Um, oh, I would call child services on your ass. <laughs> I would blow Noted. up your spot. Yeah. <laughs> Noted. Uh, did you miss anything? Like, you know, like joining that early? Like, you went to college early, but, like, do you feel like you missed out on things like spring break or, like, prom or... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, so even, like, in relation to whether it's the NFL or NBA, NHL, like, it's hard for me to fathom that some of these kids are, like, doing college and going straight into, you know, being a pro athlete. Like, I can't fathom that because when I was 21, 22 sitting in Afghanistan you know I like I've done a lot with you know a bunch of different sports teams at this point and I just I I cannot put myself in their shoes like two totally different walks of life um and I do like I don't regret anything about military service or how I went about it you know the things that I did accomplished failed at even um but I do like sometimes I I wonder like what it would have been like if you know if I said all right well let's finish the last two years of college and then go in as an officer or something like that Um, but you no. can't you can't recreate beach week in Afghanistan. <laughs> no. That would suck. Yeah. There's no water, is there? No. Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, fast forwarding to you know what's kind of to me made you so impressive is the obstacle you had to overcome when 2012 the crash. You know, take me through what happened and and what do you remember about it? Yeah. Um. So just. My deployments, um, single, not married, loved going over overseas. I was doing back-to-back deployments. So I was only home for like four months in between going to Afghanistan, coming home, and then going back in 2012. Mm-hmm. That deployment was night and day compared to my first one. Uh, I was The things that I was doing as a helicopter door gunner was a little more intense. Um, a lot, my missions were far more hands-on than they were than, you know, my first time going over there. And... Um, yeah, June 23rd, 2012, it just, it was any other day and any other mission, really. Um, it's weird to talk about because I knew something bad was gonna happen that day. Like, right. you just, you just, you feel it. Um, and on January 19th, um, we had a helicopter go down that actually killed all six crew members. And their call sign that night was Iron Tail 06. 
in their memory, in their honor, we painted a helicopter um, that said, you know, we will never forget Iron Tail 06 on the nose landing gear door. All the 50 cows were painted for them. Um, you know, everybody's names were just everywhere all over this bird, and it was our memorial helicopter. Um, and so on June 23rd, I obviously on the flight schedule, and then my chief warrant officer comes up and he says, hey, um, you're going out, like, go ahead and, you know, start turning up the bird. Well, I go to run out to my aircraft, which was 01, and he snatches me up and says, no, you're going out on 06. And um, it was just this weird pitting feeling, it just wasn't right. We turned up the birds in the middle of the day, um, which is pretty rare, normally you like to fly, obviously, late at night, early morning hours, so the enemy can't see you, um, and at least track you or figure out what, you're, what you have going on. And then they come to me and they tell me that my call sign's Legacy 07. And again, treated it like any other day, gun run. You know, we go out and do our first little segment of the mission, come back to the fuel pits, fuel up, and then we go outbound to a forward operating base called Nauzad. And from there, we were meant to be going to another base called uh, Musakala, which we were going to do an extraction of some Marines that needed some help. And we made it right outside of, um, there's an, an A&P post and then the FOB that we were trying to get to. And unfortunately, we just never landed safely. Um, the last thing I remember is the pilot coming over comms and saying, you know, we're making inputs on the aircraft and we're not getting the desired outputs. And the nose of the aircraft started to go down and my tail gunner um, called for power, which basically means pull the fucking stick up. Um, he said it wasn't getting the outputs, and then next thing you know, we lost what we call a hover bubble. So we went so far nose up that we rolled left, um, and I was on left gun. So the things that I remember, I mean, obviously, I, being on my MVGs, I remember seeing you know different little flares. Um, but the last thing I remember is like watching the ground come towards me, and people ask me all the time, like, "Oh, did you pray? Like, what what happened?" Put on um, time, do you? You do though. You do and you don't. But like. I don't know if it was a defense mechanism or what it was, but I just counted like I normally would if the helicopter were landing safely. So normally it would be five, four, three, two, one mains on deck so that the pilots knew where, where we were in relation to the yeah. ground. And that's all I did. And I, the last thing I remember is smashed into the ground and I woke up and came to just because everybody of course is screaming and trying to figure out who's where. and. Um, I didn't feel anything. I just, I could feel, I lost the entirety of, I could fit my fist through this side of my face. So I lost the entirety of my jaw, my teeth. Um, and I, I couldn't breathe out of my nose. Like it was just, everything was a struggle. And I was just trying to make sense of everything. Do you and have then, a first thought? Were you like, man, am I fucked up? Like, or is it, you know, no. what hurts or? So they started, um, they couldn't get a response from my tail gunner, and my tail gunner was like my idol. Yeah. Um, he was a gunnery sergeant, I was just a corporal at the time, and this dude, like, he was just everything that I wanted, you know, to be as a Marine. Um, and I don't know why I did it, but he came off of his gunner's belt. Um, some say it so that he could get to the one of the empty seats, but he ended up going out the back of the helicopter, um, and he hit the river rocks before our helicopter even hit the river rocks. Um, so they were trying to call for him and get a reaction from him. And the moment I realized that he wasn't responding, I was just started screaming. Right. Um, and that's all I cared about. Yeah. Like I, I knew my leg was destroyed and I knew my arms were messed up and I knew there was obviously something wrong from here up, but I just wanted to know where he was. Um, but conveniently we were carrying uh, three space available army medics. Um, basically, they were just there to get a, a quick ride over to where we were headed to. 
Um, so, I mean, they were quick. They got out of their seats. And obviously, we called for security and um, reinforcements. Um, so we called up to 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. They came out from the, the FOB that we were supposed to be going to. Came out in the MRAPs, helped us strip the casualties, strip all the weapons. Um, and they threw me into another helicopter and alongside my tail gunner, and we flew out. Um, Where do you go? Uh, we went from Nauzad straight to Camp Bastion, which is a British airbase out in Afghanistan. And I was there very briefly. I had two doctors pass me up. They looked at me and said, there's not a chance, and they kept walking. Not a chance you're going to make it. Yeah. They decided that my head trauma, uh, they just didn't think that. Did they explain to you what happened up um, here, you know, with your brain movement? Were they able to give you some prognosis on that, like, relatively quickly, or no. was there downtime? No, it, it was more like, so I've actually, I'm actually good friends with one of them now. Um, yeah. And it took a lot for him to walk up to me and say, I'm sorry, basically. Um, but he just looked at me and was like, okay, I have these other people here. I can treat a blown up leg. You know, I can cauterize that and clean it up, and but I can't treat what she has going on. Um, and I had set fractures in my C2, C3, and C4, so they couldn't like turn my head to do a bunch of stuff with. And these are makeshift hospitals, you know, they're yeah. tents in the middle of Afghanistan. But I got really lucky. There was a British um, plastic surgeon that was actually volunteering her time out there. Wow. And she then came up and was like, looked at everybody and was like, you know what? You can sew up everything else, but don't touch her face. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm fixing that. Yeah. Um, she did a nice job. Thank you. I mean, if a corpsman did it, it would definitely be if like, a corpsman, <laughs> as much as you love corpsman, it's just <laughs> yeah. like, that's just not, no, not, it's not their true. thing. No. Um, was there a moment when they're passing you up that you're like, am I going to die? I mean, is this it or? Well, I honestly thought I was going to die because like going through my head and the whole helicopter ride back over, I just thought like, I'm not dying without seeing my little sister. Like the moment I say goodbye to her, I'm out. Like I'm fine. It's okay. But then and when you I were got at peace. I was I was okay with it. Like there was never a moment of like crying or fear or anything like that. It was I just want to say bye. Like if this is if this is how this is going to end, like I want to say bye to my my sister. Is that how you thought it would go? I mean, because I'm sure when you enlist and when you're out doing this dangerous shit, you're like am I ready for death? Yeah, but it's weird. I mean, it's that obviously, like, I had a will. You know, I mm -hmm. flew with a picture, a cross, and a picture of my family in my in my pocket every single day. I would not go out without it. Like, but in my mind, like, if I had them with me, like, things would it'd be okay. Um, but I think in the moment when you're in the middle of like popping off a 50 caliber machine gun and things are hitting the fan, like, you don't really think about it. You're just you're running off adrenaline and you're doing what you need to do and. Um, so in the moments where maybe you should have those, you know, those, those thoughts and those fears, it's never even comes to mind. Like, you got too much Mountain Dew. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 38 surgeries. I mean, like, you know, shit, football players, we complain about a couple of them. Uh, at least we get the hospital socks. I hope you collected hospital <laughs> socks. I love hospital socks. I have ample now. With yeah, yeah. Um, so with all the surgeries, I mean, there's got to be a lot of low points, but We've talked about this before, like the psychology of when somebody walks in the room and tells you you're losing a limb. It's got to be a heavy, you're just like, no fucking way. Like, I'm sure you knew it pretty quickly, but when they tell you in a semi-sober state, because you couldn't take pain meds, yeah. right? Because of the head trauma. You know, you're dealing with pain. You're probably, I don't know where you are mentally, but they come in and they ask you, you know, they, they tell you you're not going to, you're going to lose your leg. What's that like? 
Well, I think for me, it was very, I don't know if superficial is the right word, but as a young woman, I have a hole in my face, my back's broken, my leg's destroyed. You know, at 21 years old, I'm not worried about, am I gonna be able to walk again? I'm worried about, can I wear a dress again? Am I gonna be able to wear heels? Who's gonna look at me differently? Can I be a parent if I want to be? Um, those were the things that scared me the most. Like I didn't even, the physical side of things didn't even cross my mind initially. Um, but then of course, obviously this evolution happens whether you're ready for it or not. Yeah. And the physical side is like being a, a freaking toddler all over again. Yeah. I had to learn how to balance. When I stood for the first time, like it was just total waterworks because I, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, it's not like you pop this leg back on and you just go. Like there was so much, like so much thought that has to go into all of it. You retrain your entire body. And you're retraining your nervous system probably and your proprioception or all these terms that yeah. I loosely know <laughs> from stupid fucking rehab. But you're going through a real rehab process and coupled with probably the psychological stuff that you're afraid of. And I guess, you know, now, like I've got a teammate who lost a leg in a car accident, Isaiah P, and we talked about him. I mean, there was a guy, a practice squad guy for the, for the Dolphins a week ago that uh, he was in a bad rollover accident. They amputated his arm on the scene and you're somebody who's you know a fighter and somebody who's an athlete um, and you've got all this stuff ahead of you what advice would you give to somebody whether it's an athlete or just somebody regular when they're getting that diagnosis that their life's going to change forever the thing that I have lived by and it took me a long time to figure this out was it's the six inches between your ears and what's behind your rib cage that dictate what you're capable of um, and the moment that I put my head and my heart in the right place it was totally fine. Um, like I was able to own, you know, the things that maybe I was insecure about, or I was able to own the things that were challenging for me. Um, but until you get this and this in the right place, it's not, you know, it's not going to happen for you. And so that's really what it comes down to. Um, the invisible side of things um, can overcome any of the visible stuff. I mean, I get fucking negative over the smallest, stupidest things, and you're losing a limb. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you, is there a process to that? I have always said that the right actions follow the right perspectives. And the moment you can figure out how to shift your perspective just a little bit, again, like everything will come so easy for you. Like the moment I realized that I came home and there's a lot of other people that never did and yeah. never will, the light bulb went off. You know, yeah. like if I can't live this life and be happy and grateful for the life that I have, then I need to do it for the people upstairs that never came home. Yeah. Um, and not only that, but you know, it's as cheesy as it sounds, like I could be really pissed off that I'm missing one leg. Or I can look at, you know, all of the things that I've gained because of it. Sure, I've lost the leg, I've lost my military career, hell, I lost a lot of my memory, you know, I've lost a lot. Or I can say, because I've lost these things, I've gained. And all of the opportunities, the people, the, you know, just the experiences, it, it's worth it. And talking to a lot of the vets that work with Waterboys, which is how I met you, and They've, they've served in the third world and they know that perspective is probably easier to come by for y'all with losing somebody you went to war with, with seeing that family that didn't have clean water, that, that was dirt poor and not just America dirt poor, like dirt poor. And um, th th does that help a lot? I mean, just, just encountering those things? Absolutely, I mean, I think the more that you're exposed to third world countries or people who are truly struggling day in and day out. Um, 
I think it's easy for me to look at my life and say, you know, oh, this isn't that bad. Or for yeah. me to go over to other countries that I, you know, go climb in now and yeah. see what those people are dealing with for prosthetic limbs or wheelchairs or wooden crutches. Like, I think because I've seen how bad it really can get, yeah. it's not as bad to me, like the things that I'm why, doing. Why is that that everywhere you climb, I mean, like the seven summits, like a lot of these peaks surrounding these places are really economically depressed areas or areas where you can learn a lot culturally. And like, that's a big part of mountaineering, which full, full disclosure for everybody at home, like it's obvious to us, we met in 2016 climbing Kilimanjaro for, for our Water Boys Conquering Kili initiative, which is players and, and, and vets getting together. You do a lot of work with MVP, merging vets and players. It's a nice fit um, and it's a lot of fun. But the side of it that I think most athletes take for granted and maybe not the military folks is that when you go there, you're gonna see things that blow you away what did you see in Tanzania and what did you see when you were getting ready to, to give Everest a go? Um, you, you, you're talking about doing Aconcagua, right? Did Aconcagua. You did Aconcagua. What do you see in those places? I see gratitude for nothing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what makes it so powerful. I mean, you're watching these kids that are two years old chasing a rapper, you know, down the street, a piece of trash down the street, and um, they're happy with that. Like, they are so grateful for anything that comes their way. Like, we saw it when we were bringing, you know, water to some of these villages and stuff. And just something as simple that we have every day, have plenty of access to, like, these, that changes people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, gratitude for the littlest things. Um, I wish I woke up every day and say, you know what, hey, I'm thankful for these shoes and this dress or, you know, just everything that I have at my fingertips and I don't I should yeah. it's tough because like you leave like when I go to Tanzania and I know it's the same thing it's like kids this, the same age as Waylon who you know my three-year-old like are walking around like herding cattle and shit like yeah. that's like their job like like they grow up fast and you see these water sources you wouldn't go jumping and, and go swimming in these places uh you know animals are defecating in, the, in these water sources there's algae there's god knows what else and there's film there's gasoline film at one of the schools we worked at even though you, you see it, you leave two weeks later, you're like, you're back to being a complaining, whining little fucking American. <laughs> and, I, and, and, I, and I do it too. How do you make that perspective last? I don't know. There, I, I pick a handful of stories, like just people that I just sat down and was able to talk to. And I, I try to carry those home with me. Yeah. Like when I did Aconcagua, for example, became the first woman amputee to ever make it to the top, you know, pat on my back, felt great about it. But when I got to the bottom, there was a, um, a young woman that was an amputee and she came up to me later and said, you know, you've inspired me to attempt a summit next week. Yeah. So I take my necklace off and I give it to her. And so to me, like, obviously giving this gold necklace to, you know, this young woman, you know, she thought it was the greatest thing in the world because yeah. she's never going to have something like that. Um, so it's like, I try to pull those little memories and hang on to them. You know, yeah. I try to write about them and, um, you know, it's hard for me not to to look at little kids and like going in the stores and stuff and they're kicking and screaming and crying because they're not getting what they want. And I, oh God. Oh yeah, me, I'm, <laughs> like, I'm tough on my, I'm tough ugh. on my boys. And cause it's just like, man, like you don't know how fucking good you have it. Like don't, don't throw your shoes. Like some yeah. fucking kids don't have <laughs> shoes. Like what are you doing, dude? Yeah. But I've seen you cause you're a total hard ass. Like you're not somebody you want to, you want to be on the wrong side of going up a mountain. Like you are super, you can be a hard ass on the mountain and uh and then we get down and you're dealing with kids and you just like you just melt yeah. and that's the cool duality of like redefining like what it is to be a tough person like you can have that that more vulnerable side and you can have that sensitivity 
which I think is really cool. And, and you know, I've called you a renaissance woman, but you're a lot more. You're, you're really into women's empowerment. I mean, like, you, you, the first story you talk about at Aconcagua has to do with inspiring a young girl. Or, I mean, Tanzania, Sub-Saharan Africa, most of the burden falls on women and girls to go, go fetch this water. Dangerous treks, you know? Um, it's a gender issue. Do you look at yourself as, as, as an icon that can inspire young women? And who do you look up to? I want to be an icon for young women. When I was in the hospital, part of my issue was I, I didn't feel like I had that role model. You know, I want to be that for somebody else. I want young girls to look at me and say, hey, you know what, she's owning those scars because she loves the stories that they, you know, that they wrote or that they represent. Or, you know what, she's gone out and got three master's degrees and a doctorate and she sits there and, I push forward in a man's world every single day out in the outdoors. And you've owned, um, I mean, you, you were in the body issue. You're the first vet um, in the body issue, which is scary as fuck to me. If they called <laughs> me, not that they ever would, to be in the body issue, I'd have to, like, eat nothing for, like, <laughs> six months. But you go out there and you, and you kill it, and you're awesome. And I'm sure, you know, people who have gone through struggles you have, you inspire them, and, and young girls in general. I was part of the good old boys club yeah. for years. In the Marine Corps, I talked just as bad as they didn't probably acted worse right. um, but I think like being able to embrace those differences that's going to be a game changer moving forward in society like I don't think I don't think you know everything has to be accessible or I do think people have to truly make an effort to, to hold themselves to a higher standard but I think inclusion is going to be I think inclusion is the direction that we need to go down mm -hmm. go towards and you and you've worked to include um, you know women in your fight for fighting for the people who can't fight for themselves. You've, you've worked to include, um, you know, people with disabilities. I mean, everything you do is very intentional and purposeful. Like you climb, you've, you've, you've tried Denali, you've tried Everest, you've done Kili, you've done Aconcagua. It seems like every time you're doing a really intentional cause to go with it. Can you talk about those causes and what you do with your foundation? Yeah. Um, well, it definitely started with Water Boys. And, um, you know, I absolutely love what you were doing with, you know, Killy and the and the Tanzanians and I honestly kind of emulated what you had going on um, and so all of my climbs. Um, well, now I'm gonna get all mushy. <laughs> no, but it's that's true. Like, yeah. like I loved you know obviously I love athletics and endurance and adventure, but you know I, I don't want to go anywhere and beat on my chest and say look at what I can do on my cool one leg. It's like I want there to be purpose and passion and heart behind what I'm doing. So behind all of my climbs, I've dedicated nonprofits back here stateside and then also helped nonprofits in uh, whatever country that I'm climbing in. I created my 501c3 and it's real original. Uh, it's the Kirstie NS Foundation. I like um, the name, it's got yeah. a ring to it. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's really what it is. You know, it's a means for me to be able to, um, you know, support deserving nonprofits and provide education opportunity and healing in the outdoors. Um, it's all volunteer based. No one takes a dime or a salary from it, um, it just goes back to improving lives. Would you rather be up at Everest Base Camp or somewhere like at sea level, chilling with a beer at a campsite? <laughs> Base camp. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're fucking crazy. I was scared for you when you were up at Everest because I would be scared for just anybody. Like, I used to want to do Everest and Meg, who you know, my wife, she was like, you're fucking kidding me. Like, do you want to die? Like. Um, what was Everest like? What's the scariest thing that people don't expect? Were there times on that mountain where you were terrified? Yeah, um, and honestly, those moments had nothing to do with the mountain. Um, the terrifying part of Everest is the people that show up there. 
Yeah. You know, they're not like checking someone's resume. You know, I worked really hard to get to Everest. Like every, everything was very strategic. How I trained, the prosthetics that I created for myself, the prosthetics that I made for crying out loud. Like everything was very strategic and I worked hard to get there. Um, but then to show up to the mountain and there's people that have never even climbed before. Like people are putting crampons and teaching someone how to use an ice axe on Everest. Like that's Shut an up. issue. No, serious. Uh, so it was super disheartening for so me. So it is, it is it's, it's getting, Everest is getting to the point where it is kind of a, not a joke, but like the mountain's not a joke, but the way it's being handled yeah. is. There's so much corruption over there with it. I mean like. What's going on with that? What's the corruption that <laughs> somebody like me doesn't know? I see it's like, I see the pictures of people, the log jams, which can be frustrating on Kelly, but it's not like you're gonna die if yeah. you don't get off the mountain. Like what, what are they fucking up the worst? Um, I mean, so the, the, the wealthiest area over there is called the Kumbu, and it's because there's so much tourist traffic going in there and giving Sherpa the money. Um, and money talks, you know, these people, you know, they have 10 kids each and they have a wife and kids, you know, or, you know all those kids um, to take care of. They get busy yeah. in the Himalayas. <laughs> yeah. so there's nothing else to do, okay. you're hanging out inside. Yeah, um, at high altitude. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, like, and our money over there is just so valuable to them. A thousand bucks is gonna, going to get them through through a whole year. So you come up with somebody comes up and says, "Hey, here's ten grand. You make you know, get me to the top." They're gonna say, "Okay, yeah, fine. fuck it, I'll do it." Like yeah. I stayed at Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> yeah. Where where were the farts worse on Everest or Killy? Mm, Killy, dude. Because of the dudes that were yes. there. Yes. Well, the dudes and the things that yeah, the things that you're eating. Oh man. Hey, what's up? This is Bo Allen, Conquering Killy Class of 2019. I'm making this video in response to Fartgate. Um, some pretty intense allegations from Kiersey regarding how bad the farts were on Killy. Uh, you know, in 2019, they were still pretty bad. And, you know, I'm not going to name any names. I'm not a snitch, nothing like that. But I would like to state that I'm, I was part of the solution, not part of the problem. You know, with unhuman levels of body control, mental focus, I didn't take a shit on that trip for three days, four days maybe, and I was stopped up. I was holding them in. I was zero farting. Um, so, you know, guys like Chris, Kels, Rob, Orca, they were the problem, all right? Your boy's part of the solution, all right? The food was awful on Everest. Really? Yeah. I saw one video of you when you, which I know is hard for you because you're a competitor. You're like, I'm bowing out. The weather didn't cooperate. Yeah. It's it's so hard. You train for how long? And then you're on the mountain for how long before that happens? Yeah. Um, I trained for years for Everest, and then I had spent nearly two months on Everest. I spent a month above 6,000 meters, so a month taller than Kili. Yeah. For example. Yeah, That's the way you got to look at it, because when you get to the top of Kili, when you get to Kibo at 16,000 feet, you're like, this fucking sucks. I don't even want to spend a night here. <laughs> yeah. Remember the way we were? Yeah. You get to 19,341, you're like, we got to get down. Like, you're the highest altitude you got at Everest is what? Uh, 28,850 something. And how much worse than Kili does that feel? Oh, it's awful like you have to trick yourself into taking another step and your body is like eating itself like you know you were saying yeah. when I came when I showed up you're like oh you look better than you did you look before. healthy I was like <laughs> yeah. I, I was uh, I thought you were gonna look like the 127 hours guy like Skeletor. you were just like sitting there not eating for a while I, I I felt for you but I was proud of you and uh, I just think it, it just takes a lot to take that on I wanted to before we get out of here talk about what are, what are we missing with vets I mean because the way I look at it is vets aren't a charity case they're a tool to make our society better and they're they're more adept than us they can do jobs with attention to detail and commitment and teamwork and i feel like we fucked that up like what what are we missing with vets like thank you for your service in and up like what pisses you off 
you know, what do we need to do more of? Well, I think the reality is, like you said, I mean, opportunity. Don't tell me thank you and it just be empty. Don't feel obligated to say thanks. I mean, you paid your taxes. You know what I mean? Right. You're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're welcome. You paid my salary. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, like. Oh, if they do that to football players. I pay your salary if we did that to Beth. <laughs> so I'm not going to use that yeah, one. Yeah. But no, like, I just feel like people think, oh, well, she shot a 50 caliber machine gun for six years. Like, how does that translate? Well, oh, there's actually a lot more. There's integrity and leadership and an obedience there's obviously judgment there's i mean self-sacrifice like over commitments to you know being being able to be committed to like your mission like there's so many things that people overlook they just get so obsessed with what's face value and right. like our veterans would be huge in our workforce especially in corporate corporate america yeah like they would be able to make sound judgment and like i really do i feel like they could totally revamp tons of businesses out there. But yeah. I think our society is afraid of of what I guess we might look like right now. You know, like post 9-11 vets, like whether you're Iraq or Afghanistan, like there is a stigma associated with that. You know, I mean, I've been called a baby killer. I've been spit on. I, like your dad picked me up in Texas after I got put in handcuffs. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, for, I forgot to tell that story real quick. Um, the short version is I was sitting in first class, front row, and the woman behind me is popping off out her mouth saying that, you know, if we went over there that, you know, we deserved what we got and this, that, and the other. And I don't care if you have that opinion, but be mindful of who's around you. Right. Um, and I'm not going to take offense to it, but what happens if the woman across from me lost her son? Right. Um, and that bothered me and I took my seatbelt off and I got up and said my mind and the flight attendants were telling me to sit down and we're on our descent and yeah uh, you say you, I got escorted out of the holy <laughs> shit I wish there was a viral video uh, I'm everybody's getting not. a viral video these days on a plane like why didn't you get your viral so my pops picked you up yeah um, so we I was down there for Radio Road for the Super Bowl and uh, yeah so you I got saw you out of the bracelet I, I saw your dad Jay Glazer and uh there was somebody else there right off you, the bat. You know I was what? So That's one more time <laughs> than my dad's got me out of handcuffs. So this is pretty cool. <laughs> I, I, I got that going for me. Yeah. Um, what's next for you? Like it's in the crazy, you're a fucking lunatic adventure bucket. Um, well, I'm actually going to go down to Ecuador in September and climb a mountain called Cotopaxi. Um, yeah, me too. Yes, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, And again, to raise money for um, an organization called the Range of Motion Project. But more importantly, we're actually going to be going down there and giving recycled prosthetics to um, underserved populations, like amputee orphans and stuff. Can you stop making um, me feel bad about my life? <laughs> Not the intention. What about the English Channel? Yeah, um, so whole other world of craziness outside of mountains. Um, I want to swim the English Channel, seven marathons, seven continents, seven days, which might be happening sooner than I anticipated. Um, yeah, and then I want to bike the Great Divide, so like 2,600-mile mountain bike ride. I'd like to take a helicopter through the Great Divide. <laughs> yeah. You know what? My great-aunt is the first woman ever to swim the English Channel, named really? Gertrude Ederly. you got to fact-check that. Oh. So if you do that, I'll be there. I'll, can I ride the, the yes. tugboat and, like, motivate you and, like, talk to you? Because you're screaming And you'd be like, time. shut the fuck up. Yeah. Leave me alone, like, on the mountain. No. Um, no. <laughs> That's kind of accurate. Well, the last day was tough. Yeah. The last day was tough. Um, well, thank you for being here. And I'm very inspired by you, and I want to congratulate you. I'm very proud to have you associated with Waterboys and work with MVP, um, you know, on a small scale along with what you've done. And so um, just one of the all-around good people in the sports and 
and uh, celebrity now uh, industry. <laughs> Thank you for being here, Kirsty. We appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. And good it, luck Chris. tonight. Thank you. I'll be attentive during the speech. <laughs> I appreciate it. Congrats, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So like I said, it's an amazing interview, amazing person, amazing human being, Kirsty Ennis. Um, shout out to her and thank you uh, to her for sitting down with me for an hour. We, we spent a long time getting to know each other on Kilimanjaro, but um, you know, to be um, sitting there in LA before the ESPYs when she's about to receive an award, like the Pat Tillman Award in street clothes, it's a far, far cry from East Africa on the side of a mountain at 20,000 feet, uh, bawling my eyes out because I'm watching her summit and being the first woman to summit Kilimanjaro uh, above the knee amputee. Um, so thank you to her. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Next week, we've got George R.R. R. Martin. And this was so fun for me, obviously, uh, the brainchild uh, for the literature that birthed uh, Game of Thrones. And... Um, He's just a cool dude. He's a football fan. There's a lot more to him than dragons and, and direwolves and shit like that. This was really fun to do. Very fascinating. Uh, check this one out. It's coming out soon.